be seated. Well, it's nice to look up and discover there are still people in the room. Uh, when I saw how many people were leaving for the party for Josh, I was uh, slightly concerned I might be speaking just to Kay, and she's heard this once uh, already. It's warm, isn't it? Uh, sorry about the warmth. It's the problem with this building. Can I commend to you our build project, by the way? Uh, seamless link. We have got plans to rebuild our church on the site over the road. And just to say, our brochures are still there if you want to pick one up and uh, have a look at what we've got planned. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through a new teaching series. And each of these weeks, we've been joining Jesus in a different ministry encounter. And in each of the encounters so far, three of them, Jesus has been eating in controversial company. And this weekend, although there would have been a meal involved in the story that we're going to be look at, looking at, Jesus is less concerned with what they have to eat, and he's more concerned about the lack of wine that there is uh, to drink. The people are about to become thirsty, and Jesus does something about their thirst. Now, you probably know this story. You've probably heard it at a few weddings. Jesus is at a wedding in a place called Cana. And what we're about to look at is the first publicly recorded event of Jesus attending something after his baptism. Do you remember when God had said to him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? Or as it says in the message version, I love this, this is my son. He's chosen and he's marked by my love. He is the delight of my life. Now, aside from Jesus' baptism, this wedding at Cana marks the beginning of a three-year period of ministry before Jesus would eventually be crucified at the hands of sinful men that first Easter. So if you've got a Bible, please uh, turn with me. Don't worry if you haven't. Um, we're going to look at this story in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible that tells the story about Jesus at this wedding. Uh, John chapter 2. It says, on the third day into his mission, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. These are massive. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Now, I find it nothing short of astonishing that as Jesus is launching his public ministry, he is not in a temple He's not in a theological college. He isn't attending a prayer meeting. He isn't preaching. He isn't sitting down with his strategists, trying to work out his strategy for changing the world. In fine, we, instead, we find Jesus rocking up at a wedding with his mother and a ragbag bunch of disciples. But this is no wedding, is it, that we would be familiar with? We're used to a ceremony that maybe starts at one and a reception at five o'clock and then maybe an evening party or a disco or something at eight o'clock. And within 10 hours from marriage to conclusion, the whole thing is done and dusted and we're making our way home. 
Now, when Meg and I got married, well, several things. I had hair. Um, but anyway, we swanned off uh, to a honeymoon in Malta, and we left everybody else behind to tidy up the mess till about 4 o'clock in the morning whilst we lived the dream. Now, of course, we're the ones that are left to tidy up the mess at everyone else's weddings. What goes around comes around. But in Jewish culture, it wasn't unusual for a wedding celebration to last seven or more days. These were huge community events. And so for Jesus, this was a massive time commitment. This was a huge slice out of his diary at what was a critical period in his ministry. Now, let me remind you, Jesus has just launched a mission to save the world from sin. He's three or so days into this mission, the greatest mission that humankind has ever seen, and yet Jesus takes time out to spend some time with a couple, with a community, at a wedding. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that Jesus didn't join in in all of the events. I mean, what a contrast to celebrities and politicians today who quite literally jet into an event and jet out of an event, have a photograph taken of them kissing a baby's head, and then they disappear off to their next commitment. Seven days at a wedding celebration is a whole another level of commitment. Wasn't it good uh, last weekend, if you're with us, to, to celebrate the various contributions that different people are making in the life of the church as they serve here in so many different ways? And I do want to say to you, just in case you missed last weekend, how grateful we are to you for your service here in the life of CBC and how much you are appreciated. You see, what God is doing in the life of our church here in Christchurch simply could not be done without your commitment and without your devotion. And it was good last weekend to publicly honor you before God for the kingdom contribution and the kingdom fruit that is coming from your endeavors. Would you please know how much you are appreciated? You see, the church can only be effective when everybody finds their place and plays their part in the mission of Jesus. That's what we're about as a church. We're about the mission of Jesus. But we need to be really honest, don't we, that mission comes with an inherent risk for you as an individual, but also for us as a family, as a community of believers, as a church. Last weekend, do you remember when Kay was being really bossy towards us, she recognized the fact that we are a very, very busy church. And there's a risk in any church that we encourage what we could call a culture of busyness, and we have to remind ourselves that busyness is not always the same as fruitfulness. We've been thinking of a new strap line for us as a church, and we're wondering about this. What do you reckon? Welcome to CBC, where it's better to burn out than to rust out for Jesus. I don't think it's going to catch on. But in truth, busyness is a problem beyond the church, isn't it? In fact, it's probably the biggest well-being problem of the 21st century. I wonder, and I've had these conversations already this morning, what was the first thing you said to somebody when they said to you, how are you? How's your week been? I guarantee most of us said, oh, busy. And do you know, I'm dreading retirement because those of you who are retired sound busier than I am. And for that reason, I'm absolutely dreading it. I'm busy. And I think to myself, well, what would Jesus say if he came knocking at my front door today? What would Jesus say to you if he came and knocked on your front door about the way you're doing life and doing ministry for him? 
I wonder if Jesus were to walk in in the flesh right here, right now, what he would say to our church family about the way that we're doing church life together. You know, the reality is, the problem is, if Jesus knocked on my front door this morning, I wouldn't even be in because I'm busy. I'm busy, and that's the reality so much of the time. And I know from my own life that busyness is a danger, and maybe it's a danger for you too. I'm busy doing the work of the kingdom. I'm busy filling my diary with the next great kingdom initiative. I'm busy making my life so busy that I end up running the risk that I become estranged and aloof even from the very people that God is calling me to serve. Sometimes I can be so busy, even as a church leader, as a minister, that I become aloof and estranged from the very God I'm called to serve. It's pure lunacy, but sometimes it's the reality. And as I read this story about Jesus, there's a temptation for me to think, well, going to a party, hanging out with friends at a pub or a cafe, eating a meal together with somebody else, attending a community event, is that really, Jesus, the most important and the most significant thing that you could do in that moment? Surely, Jesus, you had some more serious business to do. And, you know, I fall into that trap all the time. I'm going to do something much more serious for Jesus than attend a family commitment or something. But I sense Jesus would say to me today, if he knocked on my front door, Chris, those occasions that you spend with family and friends and church family, they are the mission. What we sometimes think of as being wasted time is often our best investment of time. Oftenness, often there is barrenness in the busy life. There is barrenness in the busy life. And we live, don't we, in the world today in such a fast-paced, chaotic world, there's always something else to do. We can always make ourselves busy. Excessive busyness, though, can make us care less and careless about the very things that we should care the most about. In our busyness, we can end up physically, emotionally, relationally bankrupt. And do you know what I've discovered? Just maybe quality is more important than quantity after all. And at the end of the day, it all boils down to what Jesus wants me to prioritize. Yes, this is a sermon that you are hearing from Reverend Tash-driven, uber-efficient Brockway. I really did just say all of that stuff. And I need to say to you this morning, I am dealing with the plank in my own eye whilst you are dealing with the plank in yours. Oh, sorry, the speck in yours. I'm really sorry if the plank in my eye keeps hitting you this morning. You see, even as a church leader, Satan can have us so busy doing other things that actually we aren't even doing anything valuable for the kingdom of God. And what we learn from Jesus in the example in a story today is that quality time, slow down time, time spent with others, with Jesus, is part of our mission. Now, we know that because despite the fact that Jesus began such a brief mission, did you notice that Jesus' earthly ministry was shorter than Josh's placement at CBC? I mean, what's he been doing with his time? He's had four years. Jesus had three But even though his mission was brief, Jesus valued the wedding festivities at Cana. Why? Because wedding celebrations included people and Jesus was all about people. So Jesus prioritizes this event and he spends time investing in people. You know, our mission can often best be accomplished by bringing Jesus into those times of joyful celebration that we share with others, not by creating necessarily new ones. 
The example of Jesus, I think, can transform the way that we relate to other people. Instead of just being busy around everybody else, we can actually give everybody else some of our quality time. The transformation that Jesus can bring to our relationships is what we learn so clearly from our text, that Jesus valued it and he modeled it, and I want to model that in my own life. I sometimes think about my life, Lord, I'm I'm really keen to try and find that holy balance. Do you know what I mean? That kind of sweet bit, sweet spot where everything is kept in kilter. And my prayer for me, maybe your prayer for yourself today is, Lord, would you help me find the holy balance as I live my life? Because I think finding a holy balance is the, the antidote to the equally terrible extremes of burnout on the one hand and rust out where we do nothing for Jesus on the other. If you know the story, we need to discover how to have a merry heart in a Martha world. We need to find ways of finding ourselves at the very feet of Jesus, even though the world is busy and there's so much to do around us. Jesus can transform the way we relate to one another. And what I've discovered is this, is the more time I spend, the more quality time I spend with people, the more times other people ask me about the hope that I have in Jesus. The more time I spend with others, the more times I get asked to explain the hope that I have. Right, let's move to the next point, because I'm finding this really uncomfortable. Now, this water into wine miracle, I I guess predictably has kind of caused some consternation among some people of a certain religious persuasion over the years. And I've met a few people for whom the whole alcohol thing is, is a really awkward part of this story. Now, this is not something I felt the need to do, but I totally respect those who have. Some people have chosen, well, I'm going to abstain for drinking for for personal reasons. But we need to say from our text this morning, that clearly wasn't the tradition of Jesus. You know, in all the churches that I've been a part of and that I've led, there's always been this pre-existing tradition. It wasn't something I made that non-alcoholic wine would be served in our celebration of uh, communion. And there's lots of really good reasons for that. Um, Having alcoholic wine is not essential to celebrating communion. There'll be those who are amongst us who struggle with alcohol or for health reasons can't drink it. So it's good that we do that. But I do remember in another church that I was leading where this was our practice, there was a certain individual who not only insisted on being teetotal himself, but also had made it his life mission that everybody else should be teetotal. And one day he was annoying me. So I thought to myself, I'm going to talk to him about this miracle at the wedding of Cana. I said, what do you make of it? It seems to me that Jesus didn't mind having a drink in moderation. And he certainly didn't mind other people doing that around him. And he gave me this answer. And I've heard it repeated by other people since. Well, Jesus didn't really turn the water into wine. But in fact, he turned the water into a non-alcoholic premium grape juice. It's absolute fooey. It makes no sense, and we need to allow the Bible to speak freely for itself. The host of the wedding said, this is the finest wine, not non-alcoholic premium grape juice I've ever drunk. Well, what's my point in all of this? Well, my point is that sometimes we need to allow the Scriptures to shape and even challenge some of the traditions and some of the things that we hold as being dear. Sometimes we can create a theology out of things God never gave us permission to create a theology out of. 
And I think it's really interesting that John includes this response of the chief steward and his mention of the practice that many hosts would have uh, practiced in a wedding, that you always serve the cheaper wine towards the end of the party when most of the guests are utterly inebriated. They're sloshed. When the guests can't tell the difference between Marks and Spencer's wine and Lidl wine. We need to make no doubt whatsoever that Jesus' team turned this water How many gallons of it? Did you notice how many liters in the text? There was loads of it into a wonderful, rich wine. Sometimes the presence of Jesus can create an uncomfortable challenge for us. But that's Jesus for you. That's what happens when Jesus is present in our homes, in our lives, in our churches. Haven't we discovered that over the last few weeks? Jesus refuses to play it safe. But you know the thing is, alcohol really isn't the real scandal in this text. I thought I could mention it because it might be for some of us. The real scandal in the text is something else. Do you know, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when Jesus took these water jars and he, he uses them to hold this new wine. These water jars would have been part of the Jewish ritual, ceremonial purification rites. And as the guests arrived, they would have been encouraged to dip their fingertips in to acknowledge their purity. Now, make no doubt that these, uh, these jars would have been holy and they would have been very sacred in the eyes of the religious leaders and the elite. Imagine for a moment, if you want a contemporary example, we're set up for communion. It's the first Sunday of the month when we normally have communion, but that's not next month. But anyway, I'm getting into detail I don't need to get into. Imagine for a moment, we've got the communion table set up and it's laid out with the bread and it's laid out with the wine and that nice white cloth. And I decide it would be a really good idea to climb on top of the table and stand on it to preach to you. I can tell you I would have complaints via email on a Monday morning. I guarantee it. And you would feel rightly Outrage, But in a sense, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is doing here at the wedding. But once again, Jesus is looking beyond that which is merely tradition. He's looking beyond that which is merely religious ritual. And he's transforming the use of these items. And in doing so, he's reminding us of a really important principle. He's revealing himself to those who have eyes to see. He's revealing his kingdom principles, those things that really matter to him. And he's saying these things are more important than culturally defined human-made customs or so-called sacred rituals. We saw that in our gospel story last weekend as well. Now, I'll never forget, in the the early days of my ministry here at CBC, I think I'm clocking up close to 12 years, 11 and a half or so, fairly early days here. We had a baptism here in the front of the church. It it was the most brilliant celebration, and I was doing what we do. We were gathering at the door as people were leaving, and then I heard the, the screams and the delight of young children happening in the church, and some of the children had stripped off to their underwear in the church, and they jumped into the baptistry uh, to have a swim. Now, let me tell you what happens in the mind of a church leader in this moment. Ah, what's Doris thinking? Oh, my goodness. What's Bernard? I'm trying to think of names of people who aren't in the church. What's Bernard thinking about this situation that's going on? I remember the the emotions just coursing through my body, thinking somebody is going to complain about this. One of my greatest concerns is that as I looked up, one of the children was one of my own who was the ringleader. Now, do you know, as it turns out on that occasion, there was not a single frowning face. There was just delight and joy. 
There was delight and joy that something that had been a holy moment as we baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we celebrate new birth, actually was just a continuation of the party as children joined in and they celebrated the moment. And Jesus continued to be with us even in the pool party, not only in the baptism. And in some ways on that day, we were following the example of Jesus at Cana, taking what we use and bringing vibrant new life as we celebrate the the, the presence of Jesus in our lives. Now, Jesus went around throughout his ministry outraging religionists who were appalled appalled at his behavior, and he still does that. And I think there's a challenge for us in our text today, and we need to be so careful about this in churches because we get precious about the strangest of things We need to be so careful not to cling so tightly to our culturally defined traditions and personal preferences that we don't leave room for Jesus to do something new and to do something different in our midst. We need to let go sometimes of those things that we hold on to so that the life of Jesus, the abundant life of Jesus, can be experienced by others all the more. You see, it seems to me that wherever we find Jesus, we find him bringing transformation and we find him bringing change. He's still in the business of doing that today. And when you think about it, this water into wine miracle, well, it didn't change the world, did it? It it didn't end poverty. It didn't stop uh, the violence. It didn't end the wars. It didn't overthrow any dictators or an empire that was in place at the time. But it did bring change and it did bring transformation into some people's lives as they discovered afresh who Jesus was. Did you notice that Jesus tells us that John was invited to this party as a guest? He attended the party as a guest, but right in the middle of the story, his status at that party suddenly changed. Mary, his mother, notices that the wine has run out. Well, why did she notice that? Why do you think? I think she liked a glass of wine. She's noticed that the wine has run out, and she simply tells Jesus about it. Now, perhaps she was doing nothing more than any other mother would do in that moment. This is a crisis. You need wine at a party to have a good party, and it's run out. And Jesus' response is absolutely fascinating, and in fact, it's maybe even a little abrupt, isn't it? I wouldn't dare speak to my mother like that. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now, commentators really struggle about these forthright words of Jesus, which definitely carry the sense of hint and rebuke and almost corruption. But in this moment, Mary is learning something about Jesus. She's just discovered that Jesus has now become, uh, begun his ministry and that everything from this moment onwards is going to be different. Mary, did you know? Yeah, she started to know from this moment. No longer was Jesus simply her son, but Jesus was now walking to the timetable and he was following the agenda set by his heavenly father, who alone would determine the hour that Jesus was in. His father is now directing things. And this is a turning point for Mary. Mary gets the point and she spots something that something different is now happening in this moment. I'd love to think that in the best way she could possibly understand it, knowing what she knew, that she'd spotted that Jesus in this moment was God walking amongst them, that Jesus was God with skin on. She doesn't argue with him, but but she simply passes her understanding on to the others. And this is what she whispers to uh, to, to the servants. And I think this is the best advice we can hear this morning. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That's what she says to them. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. 
In this simple exchange of words, Jesus the guest has become Jesus the host, and now he is in charge. And I think there's a spiritual point to that for us to learn from this story. And it's this as I close. Jesus doesn't just want to be the guest of our lives, but he wants to be the host. Do you ever use websites? And they sometimes give you an option, don't they? Check out as a guest. Or instead, you can input all your data and your email and surrender your soul to the website so they can send you marketing. Jesus doesn't want us to check out as a guest. Jesus wants us in our journey and our walk with him to input our data, to say to Jesus, I want you to know my name. I want you to know everything there is to know about me. Jesus, I want to receive all the marketing you can possibly send me. Jesus, I don't want to check out as a guest. And as I close, I want to leave you with a question this morning because I think the text demands it. What position does Jesus hold in your life today? Are you following the advice of Mary? Just do everything that Jesus tells you to do. If you're doing that, then Jesus is a host. He's not just a guest. Does Jesus have the last say over your life and over my life? Are we allowing Jesus to shape the priorities of our lives? Are we allowing Jesus to deal with the busyness so that we can spend quality time with him and invest in a kingdom way into the lives of others? At the end of the first service, somebody came to me with a scripture verse, and I want to finish with this today because I think this is profoundly challenging. We know the verse well, Psalm 46, verse 10. We always focus on the first bit and not the last. He says, be still and know that I am God. Are you busy today? Are you burned out? Are you really busy doing stuff where Jesus really isn't a part of it? God would say to you today, be still and know that I am God. But the person that shared with this with me was really keen to point out the next verse. It says, be still and know that I am God, and then I will be exalted among the nations. <laughs> Jesus is exalted when we deal with our busyness. As I pray, I'm going to try and yank the plank out of my eye. Maybe you want to do the same. Let's pray together.